Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. I'm glad you've joined us again for our podcast. We've uh, we've been having a different structure this summer where I've been preaching through books of the Bible. We took Philippians first, and now I've just finished the third chapter of Romans this last Sunday. And the response has actually been pretty good. I, I didn't anticipate that. I thought people would, I don't know, I don't know why I thought people wouldn't receive it well. You know, we're usually doing these four smaller readings every Sunday during the liturgical year, but um, anyway, uh, I, I've been surprised and pleased at the the, the good response, um, talking through very core, key theological stuff for all believers uh, that's often neglected, but um, I'm, I'm encouraged by how many people find it worthy and engaging. Um, I've, I've really tried to, to make this stuff as accessible and relevant as uh, possible. Um, We're talking about eternal things, of course, so eternal things are going to apply cross-culturally, spatially, uh, temporally. Um, Eternal things are true eternally. So anyway, I hope you really enjoy the time spent on uh, these topics today, and um, next week we'll have Romans 4 up for you. So uh, God bless you, and I'll look forward to hearing from you. We live at a a strange time in history where Christ's name is proclaimed throughout the world, but not in a unified singular voice. Rather, we have been splintered as a Christian movement, and there are many different Christian uh, bodies of belief throughout the world. Um, It's easy to get so overwhelmed by how many different kinds of Christians there are, how many different denominations, to, to feel like it really doesn't matter how you approach the Bible. Well, these people approach it this way, these people approach it this way, how do we know what's right and wrong? I'm just going to love Jesus. The thing is, the scriptures don't present themselves to us. The Bible doesn't present itself to us as something that we can be indifferent about. Rather, the scriptures are very clear that they are God's holy word. And it's our job as Christians to figure out what the Bible says. Now, the reason, a lot of the reason why there's so much division among churches throughout the world is because Christians are not reading their Bibles. Not only do they not know, they don't care what the Bible says. They just want to do what feels right. A big part of the enemy, his approach is to corrupt our feelings. Okay, so we're going to talk about that some today in Romans chapter 3. But uh, on the front end, my concern is uh, I don't think a lot of people reserve the time and energy required to understand God's word. They want it to be easy, and when it's not, they cash out. And the approach that we're having, we're preaching through Romans for few months it's going to take us we're going to go on a chapter every month and what i'm asking of you and what's required of you not by me but by your your father in heaven what's required of you is to spend the time and energy required to understand this to integrate it into your life and to be changed by it now i know a lot of you have heard a lot of these scriptures before some of you have taken the time and energy to study it privately in your home but even of those of us who have done that, holding on to it is, is hard, and a lot of us haven't even done that. A lot of us have just taken what we've been fed in worship over the years, and depending on what church you've been at and what pastor you've been under, they may or may not have focused on this very well. 
Romans is, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, I believe it is the skeleton upon which the rest of the New Testament hangs. Every, every part of the Bible is absolutely essential, but Romans has so much of the foundational doctrine that makes sense out of the rest of the Bible. Romans, I mean, there is no optional book of the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's required for salvation. If it's not in the Bible, it's optional. It's not required for salvation. But Romans really is, in many ways, the most important book to understand because every other book affixes itself to the doctrine you find here. So Romans is written to the Roman church, which Paul did not plant. He has some friends there who have informed him about the state of affairs on the ground. They are being persecuted as Christians were around the Roman Empire, but within their assembly, they're not primarily Gentile or Jew. They seem to be evenly mixed, and there seems to be tension between the Jewish and the Gentile believers about who's more important or special, who's closer to the truth, who God likes more. And Paul is wading into this from a distance, instructing them, saying, I mean, these are people that are already suffering for their faith. He could write them and say, hey, you're not perfect on doctrine, but you're really suffering for the faith. Good for you. He doesn't do that. He writes them and he says, you're doing okay, but you need correction on a number of things. And so chapter one, he corrected the Gentiles, the Gentiles who want to maintain their way of life sexually and otherwise. He says, nope, you guys were born in sin and idolatry, and out of idolatry comes not just sexual sin, but every kind of sin, and you need to be on guard against your cultural norms. You need to know what this pleases the Lord and turn away from that and what pleases the Lord and, and pursue that. But then in chapter two, he corrects the Jews who would sit there and go, mm-hmm, 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 we're right, you're wrong. Rather, he says, you Jews are a bunch of hypocrites because you judge them and then you do the same things yourself. And he says, just because you're Jews, just because you're children of the promise does not make you any better than them. So last week, the chapter two ended with him saying, you know what, your circumcision, if you don't obey God, your circumcision counts for nothing. Remember, circumcision is the mark of men who are in covenant with God in the Old Testament. That when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai to show that one is in covenant with God through the, the covenant at Sinai, men were circumcised. And Paul says, if you've been circumcised but you don't live a holy life, then your uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. Rather, what matters is a circumcision of the heart and even Gentiles, whenever they're obedient, that is a kind of spiritual circumcision that pleases the Lord. So what Paul's going to do this week, what we're about to dive into, and he, he's trying to draw a fine line. He's trying to say, it's still a good thing to be a Jew. God did not cancel the old promises. It's still a good thing to be a Jew. However, if you're a Jew, that doesn't make you any more special than being a Gentile. So within the United States... Uh, uh, we came up with a concept in the days of segregation, separate but equal, and that fell apart. We couldn't do that. The thing is, God can do that. God does separate but equal. Jews and Gentiles are not the same thing. We are the same in some ways, but in other ways, we remain separate. It's kind of like the male-female distinction. Are men or women, which one is more made in God's image than the other? Neither. That's a trick question. Men and women are equally made in God's image, but even so, men and women are very different. There are, are very large differences between men and women. We are different creatures. We're same in the eyes of God, in the image of God, but we're very different. And likewise, Gentiles and Jews. This is a metaphor I want you thinking of as we're going through here. They're the same in many ways, but they're also very different in substantial ways. And Paul is trying to help them navigate that. What's that got to do with us? We don't have any Jews in here, right? We don't need to negotiate this with Jews. The thing is, this gets into uh, theology around works, 
around what's the point of the Old Testament? Why do we still have it in the Christian Bible? Um, it has a number of things that do affect us today in how we live. So put aside or retain uh, the right energy and attention for this, okay? And I know I made it sound really high-minded. We're about to get into the words we'll engage together. So let's look at chapter 3. We're on page 1747 in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 3. Listen to the word of God. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Okay, so I'm going to jump in and out of this. So why is he asking this question? Does it matter at all to be circumcised? Is it good to be a Jew? If you read what he said before, no, it doesn't matter at all. He says, no, it does matter. It's a great thing to be a Jew. The Jews were given God's holy law. All the covenants, promises, testimonies were given to the Jews, not the Gentiles. They have a wonderful, beautiful heritage. He's saying, this is something to rejoice in. It's not of no circumstance. It's, it's, it's powerful. It's meaningful. Verse 3, what if some, he's talking about Jews, what if some Jews were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Will God not do his promises because he's got faithless partners? Not at all. I love how clear he is. Not at all. Black and white. Let God be true and every human being a liar. So God is going to be true whether or not we are. God's going to be good whether or not we are. Even if everybody falls away, God is still God and worthy of our praise. Amen? As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So here it's going to start on a topic that it carries through several chapters. Is God right to judge us, to condemn us, when we sin, if we are born in sin? Are all humans born in sin? Is that something that we can control? No. But yet God judges the wicked and condemns sinners. So throughout this book, several times he comes to this question, how can God be just and condemn sinners that can't be anything else? So this is kind of that predestination question that we're going to come to over and over again. Here he's quoting a passage of Psalm 51 that talks about, In my mother's womb I was formed in iniquity, and as a baby I was dead in my sins. You know, that's in the Old Testament. We're going to get many more verses about this. But how can God be just? Remember, justice, or to be just, is to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Well, we are all wicked, and God's punishment is rightly placed on all of us. And yet also there's this scandal of the cross. How is it that God welcomes us into his kingdom when we were born in sin? That's something that Christ accomplishes. So one of the things right in front of every Christian should always be repentance. We have to be repenting of our sin. And if we don't acknowledge our sin, then we can't be saved. So here what Paul is putting right to us is we are formed in sin and iniquity. God is right and righteous to pour out his wrath and judgment upon us. Can anybody say amen to that? Now we can say amen and rejoice in that because we know what Jesus did for us. But it's a cause of much suffering and sorrow for those who do not learn to repent. All right, verse 5. Let's, let's go on. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Does our unrighteousness bring out God's righteousness more clearly? He's saying, yes, it does. The fact that God is still good even when we aren't is a testimony to his, his grandeur, his wonder, his, his grace. 
The fact that God is so good, even when we are, I mean, it'd be one thing if God is good because we're good. It's another thing when he's good despite our nastiness. So there are some people, he's going to talk about this, who look at that and say, well, God seems great when I'm still dead in my sins. So really, I'm doing him a favor whenever I continue to sin, right? That is a silly way of being. We'll talk about that more. What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? Saying, by my sin, God looks good. So how can he judge me when I'm making him look good? That's kind of what it says. Is God wrong to judge me when I'm making him look good? I'm using a human argument, he says. That's, that's a way of saying, I know I'm saying something really stupid, but this is kind of how people are, right? So let's imagine that uh, my, my boy Jesse is older. You know, he likes helping me around the house, but I know one day he's going to be older and he's going to help me. Imagine he and I are working on a project on the house, and he tells me he's doing it right, but he's doing it wrong. And in the course of doing this work, he actually finds something wrong with the house that we wouldn't have found otherwise. And he goes, Dad, you know, you're lucky I'm a bad worker because if I was good, we wouldn't have found this. So aren't you glad I'm a bad worker, Dad? Should a father be glad that his son is a bad worker? No, no. Or uh, imagine that you're a boss and you have an employee who's lazy and taking their time. You're giving them an assignment and they're just dragging and dragging. And then it turns out the assignment changed. And because they dragged, you actually didn't get as much trouble as you would have with a, a, a punctual worker. Imagine your lazy worker goes, aren't you glad I'm lazy, boss? I just saved you on that. You should be grateful that you got a lazy worker in me. Uh, no, that's not how things work. Likewise, God is not beholden to us or grateful for us when we sin. When we sin, we purchase our damnation. Uh, even if something good comes out of it, that doesn't make it good. So God works all things for the good of those who love him, right? But that does not mean that evil things we do that result in something good somehow become good themselves. So the classic, the classic thing that I find helpful, we, here's a very practical thing in your life. We have ways of justifying our sin, going, well, I know it was wrong, but look at the good that came out of it. So really, I'm glad it happened, right? So, I mean, think of uh, children uh, born out of wedlock, right? Every child is wonderful, and we're so glad that all children are born, whether or not they were conceived in wedlock. But even so, having sex out of wedlock is not good. It's not good. It results in something good that we should praise God for and be thankful for, but just because a baby is born does not mean... Thank God for the circumstances in which it happened. Even children of rape are wonderfully made in God's image, and I'm so glad that they're born and they're worthy of love as much as every other child. But rape is not good. Never has been, never will be. There are a lot of bad things that happen in this world that result in good things, but they do not make the bad thing good. So I used an extreme instance. But, you know, you, we have a way of doing this. I don't know, pretend that I'm just having a terrible diet and it gets so bad I have to go to the doctor uh, because I'm just feeling crummy and it turns out that uh, I, I get diagnosed with, with uh, cancer and it wouldn't have gotten found if I hadn't go to, gone to the doctor because I was being bad. Does that mean that, oh, hey, it was really good actually that I was trashing my body? No. I'm trying to provide, we do this in our daily lives all the time. We do wrong, something good comes out of it and we go, well, I guess I'm glad I sinned. That is not the right way to go through life. Just because something, uh, I can say the same thing a hundred times. Say, I get it, Pastor. All right, all right, I'll move on. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Does God judge the world? Absolutely. If God is not judged, he is not God. God 
has judged the world, is judging the world, will judge the world. There is a final judgment. We will stand before him. And on that day, I mean, you might stand and say, oh, God, look at all the good that came out of my sin. Aren't you going to let me in? And what's he going to say? Get away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you, right? That's what he says in, in uh, Matthew 7. Verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned a sinner? Hopefully that makes sense with the groundwork I've just laid. They're going, look at all the good that came out of this. Why is God mad at me? Look how good I made him look. Verse 8, why not say, as some slanderously claim we say, let us do evil that good may result? This is that human way of talking. Let's go ahead and do bad things so that God can show off how good he is. That is so ridiculous. He doesn't even argue against it. He just says their condemnation is just. He's saying they deserve to go to hell for how stupid and evil that is. That is a stupid, bad way of going through life. And there are a lot of people who are not necessarily that explicit about it, but a lot of people are very permissive of sin in their lives. People who say they love Jesus and follow Jesus allow sin in their life because they see good coming out of it. That's not how God works. There are a lot of people... I, man, I forget the name of that movie. There was a guy, there was a, a guy who decided that in the name of Jesus, he was going to go to Africa and kill warlords. Anybody ever see this movie? And he talked about how instead of being a lamb, a sheep, as, as Christ says he requires, he says, I'm going to be a, a wolf for the Lord. Every single representation of a wolf in the Bible is bad. Wolves will not inherit the kingdom. But people do. I had a guy who was, who was high out of his mind one time that I knew very well. He called me at 8 in the morning over here at the church, and he said, I'm high on meth right now, and I'm slinging meth, but I am battling demons, let me tell you. And I, I speak the language of the demons against the demons, and I said, you're going straight to hell, buddy. I know you think you're doing good, but you're not. And, you know, we might... I'm lifting up extreme examples, but on a daily basis, so many Christians continue to persist in sin thinking that it's okay, thinking that God might in some sense still be happy with them. One of the, a pastor has to help you hate your sin. There's a meme that gets passed around every now and again. A good preacher will either make you hate your sin or hate the, the preacher, one or the other. But, but part of what I have to offer you is holy hatred. And there is such a thing. I know we're all raised to believe that being a Christian is about being nice. I don't know why we all believe that Jesus wasn't nice. Being a Christian is not being nice. Being a Christian is about being holy. God hates some things. We should hate what God hates. God hates sin. We should hate our own sin. Can anybody say amen to that? Let's move on. Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's talking to the Jews. Remember, Paul himself was a Jew, right? Remember in Philippians, he bragged about how good a Jew he was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was born a Pharisee. I followed the strictest sect, and according to the law, I was blameless. But he said, even though I have all that, compared to the extreme beauty of Christ, I regard all that as garbage, as dung. So he's saying, how should we Jews feel? What should we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Even though we have this wonderful heritage, we have the Old Testament, God gave us all this stuff, do we have any advantage? He says, no, we actually don't. We have, we have no, nothing above the Gentiles. So that's really good. Are we Jews or Gentiles? I think we have one guy in here who's of Ashkenazi Jew descent. All the rest of us are firmly Gentiles, right? And God put us on equal footing with his children, the Jews. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. 
Uh, okay, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. Okay, so what he's going to do here is Jews and Gentiles are different, but we're the same in that we're all born in sin and we're all saved only by faith. That's it. Born in sin, saved by faith for Jews and Gentiles. All right, so now he's going to turn to the Old Testament and prove to the Jews that they are equally born in sin as Gentiles. Jews looked at Gentiles like they were dogs, right? Like they were less than, like they were less holy because they were not God's holy people. Paul is going to use their own scriptures here to show them Jews are just as dirty and unholy as Gentiles. Here's the scriptures. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There, are no, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you see the little letters throughout that, starting with uh, that little A at the end of verse 12. You see this draws on Psalms, Ecclesiastes, uh, more Psalms, Isaiah. This is taking things throughout the Old Testament and showing you might think you're good, but God doesn't. And God is the one who matters. You are not any better than anybody else. Whether or not you're a Jew, you are not special. Do you think that hurts to hear? Do you think that hurt the Jews to hear? They thought they were special, and he's saying you're not so special. You're actually just as sinful as everybody else. Do you think that hurt them to hear? Why would he tell them that if that hurts their feelings? Say that again, Jill. So they straighten up. They are in error. I'm going to remind you, the word for sin in Greek is hamartano, and it means to miss the mark. That's all it really means. And if you imagine shooting an arrow at a, a, a target then you are shooting an arrow and you're missing the target. You're not hitting where you want. And to, that, to us, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Oh, you missed the mark. But it's a big deal to God. The wages of sin is death and damnation, right? So it doesn't feel like a big deal to us to make mistakes. To God, it's a big deal when we make certain mistakes, when we know better, when we ought to do and be better. So here, we are born in sin. We are inclined toward evil in every way. We want to wiggle out of it and go, I'm not so bad. We want to look in the mirror and go, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And what Paul is saying here is that doesn't matter at all. You're just as sinful as everybody else, just in need of salvation as everybody else. The path to salvation is the same for you as for everybody else. And what is that pathway of salvation? Repentance, turning to the Lord Jesus, confessing your faith in him, having his blood applied to your hearts. There's a lot of language that we can use there. There is no salvation outside of a new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to give up on yourself. If you come to Jesus saying on the day of judgment, look at all the good I did for you. Look at all these things I did in my life that glorified you. He's going to say, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoer. He says it flat out in Matthew 7. But if we come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I rest upon you and your righteousness alone. I have none of my own. That's the only thing that has purchased our salvation. Paul is clear on that. Jesus is clear on that. The whole of the scripture is clear on that. We have a culture in many American churches 
where we want to believe we're not as bad as some other people, we are just as bad as everybody else. These words are just as true for us as it was for these ancient Jews who thought they were special. We live in a culture that says, you're special, you're special, you're special. The gospel response to that is, no, I'm not. I'm not special. My kids might think I'm special. My wife might think I'm special. You might think I'm special. Not in any way that's salvific. Not in any way that matters. Whenever I come before the judgment seat, Jesus is not going to say, oh, I just love how special and different you were, Jeffrey. Come on in. He's going to hopefully say, I saw my life reflected in your life and death. Come on in, brother. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it's not talking about Roman law, it's talking about the Old Testament here. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who's under the Old Testament law? Jews. The Jews. He's saying whatever the law says, he's saying it to you Jews. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held, held accountable to God. Every mouth being silenced, the notion there is that when you're before God's judgment seat, you're actually not going to be able to speak. There are going to be so many people who, right now, they think they'll have something to say when they're in front of God. When you're actually before God at his judgment seat, you will not be able to utter a word to defend yourself. That's how uh, it, experiencing God will be beyond any earthly experience you've ever had. And yeah, you might be able to talk and defend yourself in worldly situations. When you are before God's throne, his righteousness, spelled out in his law, is of such a caliber, we're not going to be able to speak. Our mouths will be shut. There will be nothing to say to defend ourselves. In the end, whenever you read Job, he tries to defend himself against God. God shuts him down, and finally he just sits in silence, right? Because there's nothing to say. That's how righteous God's holy word is. That's how righteous his law is in the Old Testament. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So I, I use this metaphor in Delaware, and Mark Huntington was there. Uh, he liked it. He couldn't be with us this morning. He had some place to be, so he worshiped there. And the metaphor I came up with is, pretend there are two people with cancer, and it's terminal for both of them, but one goes to the doctor and gets all the tests showing how he's sick and how it's going to progress, and, and, what's, and then the other guy just lives in ignorance, and he has no idea what's going on, and he suffers and dies. That's pretty much the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Jews, through the righteousness of God's law, have all the tests showing how they are unrighteous, how they're dead in their sins, how they're going to hell. All that is shown in God's law. The Gentiles just didn't have anything like that. They were still under the curse of Adam. They were still destined for hell. They just had no idea how or why. The Jews were given the law just to diagnose the problem, but not to solve it. But Christians received salvation. Christians were given the solution to solve that problem of the spiritual cancer we're all born with. I like that metaphor, even if you don't. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So it's saying you don't have to have the Old Testament to start to receive Jesus. God has revealed the cure for our sin, even when we haven't seen the diagnosis, the, the test results showing our, our death. Rather, all nature has already shown it. Gentiles can receive Jesus every bit as much as Jews can. 
For Jews, it's a benefit to have the law, but it's not required to receive Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, it's faith that saves us, right? But is faith something that we do, or is it something that God does in us? It's something that God does in us. We've talked about this before. So there is nothing we can do to put God in our debt. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Rather, faith is just the evidence that Christ has already saved us. If it's present in you, you are saved. He has done everything necessary for your salvation. If it's not present in you, then God has not given it to you. And you can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to, to grasp it. It's just something that God gives to you. Pray for faith. But whether or not God gives it to you is not in response to anything good that you do. It's out of his grace alone. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's summarizing what he's already talked about here. This, this shouldn't be new to us. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So to be justified means essentially exonerated. You're charged with a crime, and because someone else pays the price, you're pronounced free, innocent, you're exonerated. You get to go. So we are justified freely. All are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus, what he did on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin and purchased our salvation. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Christ was a sacrifice of atonement. Now, that's where the Old Testament gets really helpful because atonement, blood sacrifice, is how they achieved atonement between Jews and God temporarily. This is a final atonement. Atonement's an interesting word. It's a combination of the word words at one. At one-ment is what it is. So you and I, born in sin, we are separate from God, alien from God, enemies with God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are now united with God. We are at one with God through the blood that Christ shed on the cross. That's what he's talking about here. Christ achieved atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We're going to see that word over and over in the coming chapters. When you have that faith, that's evidence that Christ's blood has been applied to your heart and he has paid the penalty for your sins. If his blood has not been applied to your heart and you don't have faith in Christ Jesus, then have you been forgiven of your sins? No, you stand condemned, you are damned. That's what he's saying here. Jesus did this. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God is just, right? God is perfectly just. You and I were born in wickedness, deserving of wrath and condemnation, but is God going to pour out his wrath upon us? No. Does that mean that God is not just? Does that mean that God does not punish sin? No. He is just. He has already punished our sin. Jesus took the punishment upon him on the cross. God poured out his wrath upon Jesus so that he didn't have to pour it out on us. He, challenged, he, he punished sin, but he also showed mercy on us because of what Jesus did. So God is perfectly just. He is. He pours out his wrath upon the wicked. He will continue to pour it out on the wicked who don't repent of their sin and turn to Christ. But for those of us who have repented of our sin and we are in Christ, salvation has been achieved. We've been forgiven. That's the heart of the good news. That's the gospel. Can anybody say thanks be to God?
verse 27. Where then is boasting? Can I brag about how good I am? No. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of the law? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. That's the New Testament law. We're under the law of love or the law of faith. That's what Paul calls it in different places. We're not under the old law. We're under the new law of love. And the only price it exacts is faith. That's all that's required, and God gives it to us. That is such a good deal. That is a scandalously good deal. Verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's a way of saying you cannot earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to put God in your debt. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Of course not. Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. So you see what he did there? He said, we're all under sin and we're all saved by faith, Jews or Gentiles. That's the deal for every single person on earth. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. That is the weirdest note to end on. It goes on. But Paul's trying to walk this line saying, we're all the same in God's eyes. No one is any better than anybody else. So does it not matter to be a Jew? And he's saying over and over, yeah, it matters. It's a good thing. Well, why? <laughs> and we're going to keep going through this more. And it might seem a little disconnected from us because nobody here, does anybody even know a Jew? Uh, that's kind of a, yeah, okay, we know some Jews. There used to be some that lived in this town. I'm not aware of any that, that do now. But even so, we are Gentiles, and we need to get clear what is required of us. What's the deal? What deal has Jesus made with us? What saves? What's important? And if it's in God's holy word, it's important. So hopefully, I, I tried to weave this together with chapters one and two. We're going to read four or five after that. We're going to keep going. What I'm hoping is you're going home, you're reading this, and it becomes a tapestry that you become familiar with. St. Peter, in his letter, said there are many things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. He said, however, that is not a license to misinterpret. Rather, these things are just hard to understand, and it's to us to try to understand them. So let me, you know the answer to this. Do you have anything better to do in your life than to figure out what God has set aside for you to know? You have nothing better going on. You might feel like you have important stuff. You might feel like, oh, I've never had to do this before. Why is Jeffrey asking? Why is he putting this on me? I'm putting it on you because I love you. And I, I firmly believe you cannot be saved without intimate knowledge of God's holy word. I believe it was written for your salvation, and if you don't use it, you lose it. And am I saying that you can lose your salvation? I'm going to say what Peter says in 2 Peter. If you turn your back on your salvation and choose not to walk in righteousness, then it is like a pig going back to the mud and like a dog vomiting and licking it back up. That's what our lives are like when we choose persistent sin rather than God's righteousness. And the only way that we can walk right with God is to know his holy word. That's the only way. Have I made this sound very clear? Some people don't like me to say, everything is so black and white with you, Jeffrey. I said, thank God. I don't live in a gray world. I don't live in a world, I don't know what's right. I know what's right because my Lord has told me what's right. I have a blissful life where I know right and wrong. I know how to walk with the Lord in confidence and righteousness. Sometimes I don't do it, and I stand condemned for that. 
but I know where I stand with the Lord. I'm not the guy with cancer who has no idea. I'm going, why am I suffering? I'm the guy with cancer that is experiencing that holy radiation, right? Ooh, I'm going to keep going with this metaphor. Holy radiation, it's painful sometimes, but God is curing me of my cancer. And I've got a living testimony about what I used to be, who I used to be. And I used to be a guy who was dead in his sins. God saved me out of that. And I'm so glad for that. Now, that doesn't make my sin good. My sin was never good. I'm trying to connect this to that theme earlier. The bad that led me here is not good. God is good, and I am good when I am in God. Friends, God is good. And all the time, may we be good like him. Amen? Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, number 557, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds.